Galatians 5. Looks like we're starting in 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. For if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. When God created in Genesis chapter 1, seven times... He says, it is good. Uh, He creates the heavens and the earth. It is good. He creates the stars, the sun, moon. It is good. He creates the earth and the sea and the plants. It is good. He creates the animals. It is good. He creates man. He says, it is good. And then he rested. And for seven times, he says, it is good. And then he says in verse 18 of chapter 2, it's not good. Something is not the way it's supposed to be. And that's worthy of us taking note. What is this thing where God says it's not good? And it's when he creates Adam, and Adam is all there is. Adam is the only one. And God looks at Adam alone and he says, that's not good. That guy is not supposed to be alone. And even from the very outset of creation, we get this idea of how important relationships are to us. We need relationships. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. And it's going to dovetail into Galatians chapter 5 and Uh, the, the verses that we just read, we need relationships. We were created to need each other. And, uh, just for a moment, I want to take you through a few reasons theologically why we need relationships. Number one, we need relationships because of the nature of God himself. The nature of God himself is that he exists in relationship. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, and even in the first three verses, you have verse 1 that says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You have verse 2 that says the spirit of God was hovering over the water. And then in verse 3 you have, and then God said, he spoke, and John in his gospel tells us that it is Jesus who is the Logos who spoke the world into existence. And so in Genesis chapter 1, in the very first three verses, you have God, you have the Spirit, and you have the Son. And they are in relationship together. And that helps us make sense when we get down in Genesis chapter 1 to verse 26. And it says, this is always, maybe, maybe this has stumped you. It says, God said, let us make man in our image. What's going on there? Well, if you were paying attention in verse one and two and three, then you understand that there's God and he is also spirit and he is also the word and he exists in relationship to himself and he creates us out of that relationship. It is, it is like God exists in relationship to himself and in creation, he expands that circle to include you and me and relationship is the very 
nature and environment that we were created in and for. And so God, who is always relationship, created us to expand that relationship. And when we become out of relationship, we know that something's not right. We become aware that something's not right. It's kind of like being a fish out of water for the first time. He doesn't know what's wrong. He just knows something's wrong, right? That's us when we're out of this environment that we were created for, relationship. Here's number two. The nature of self tells us that we need relationships. There were two elderly women at church, and they were discussing problems of growing older. And one of them said, you know, the worst thing about growing older is, is when your memory starts to go. She said, I have known you all my life, and yet I can't think of your name. What is it? And the other lady looked back and she thought for a moment and she said, do I have to answer that right now? We need other people so that we know ourselves. You cannot know yourself adequately outside of relationship. There are a couple of researchers that did some study on this and they said, they concluded that other people in our lives actually have a better a, a view of who we are than we do. Apparently, we have this blind spot, and uh, they, they threw some technological jargon on that. They refer to it as motivated cognitive process. And what they mean by that is that on some level, whether consciously or not, we are all motivated to not see all that we are. We have our own blind spots. And... So we might have a negative view of ourselves that's not right. On the other hand, we may have a positive, very positive view of ourselves that's not quite right. And what we need is other people to step in and to say, you know what? You need to stop telling yourself you're not smart. You're one of the smartest people I know. How many have you have had that kind of thing happen and you've learned more about yourself? On the positive side, uh, we might think uh, something that's not true as well. We, we might need somebody to step into our lives and say, Dude, I know you think you're chiseled and that you have a six-pack, but it's more like a milk jug. So you need to reevaluate there. We need outside people looking into our lives to tell us who we really are. The nature of our self necessitates relationships. Here's number three. Um, The nature of life makes relationship necessary. Uh, The truth is that you cannot have a satisfying life outside of relationships. There's not been a survey that I have uh, come across. You know, uh, lots of places will do um, happiness surveys or... Uh, are you are you satisfied with your life? Okay, and and the people who routinely say yes, I'm satisfied with my life. Yes, I'm happy with my life. Yes, as I look back over my life, I wouldn't do anything different. The people that say yes to that are not the people who say that money is important or stuff is important or status. Uh, the one thing that they always point to, usually it's top on the list, but for sure it's one, two, or three is healthy relationships. People who are satisfied with their life are in healthy relationships of some kind, whether it's a friendship or whether it's a marriage or whether it's just with their family. We need relationships. Researchers have begun to discover that 
people who spend a lot of time alone and people who are even ostracized will testify to an increased sense that life is meaningless and devoid of purpose. Loneliness has become an epidemic in uh, our societies. And people will say, uh, researchers will tell us that loneliness is linked to cardiovascular disease. It's linked to dementia. It's linked to depression. And some will even say that loneliness has an effect on mortality that is similar to smoking and worse than obesity. And so if you are lonely, one study says that that can increase the risk of an early death by as much as 30%. Relationships are important. Relationships, uh, life tells us we need them. And our blind spots tells us we need relationships. We need other people to look in. The way we are even made by a creator who is in relationship tells us that we need relationships. And yet, (laughs) we are pretty horrible at relationships. Let me prove this to you. Um, I want you to think back when you were in grade school, okay? And I want you to think back to your best friend in grade school, all right? Now, I'm going to ask for a show of hands, and I need you to keep your hands up uh, until the second question, okay? How many of you had a best friend in grade school? Yes, okay, keep your hands up. How many of you keep your hands up if they are still one of your best friends? How many hands are up? Quite a few. Well, you guys, you guys don't count. You're still in school. Good grief. It's like, that was two years ago for some of you. Stop it. The rest of the auditorium here, there's like two or three of us, right? Why? Because we are really, we're just not good at these relationship things. And they take work, right? Fractured relationships have been around since the garden. Since Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship with God, they walked around with him, relating to him like they were created to do. And then sin came into the world and they hid because that's what you do when you know you're guilty, you cover up. And there's something about us that inherently we know we're guilty. We are just like Adam and Eve. We have sinned and we cover up. And it's really difficult for us to uncover enough so that other people really know who we are. And that's why relationships are so hard. That's why they take hard work because we are very hesitant to show other people who we really are. And so on one hand, we need relationships. On the other hand, they're some of the hardest things that we have to get right and what's going on. And Paul's going to tell us in these verses that were read earlier Uh, One of the potential insights about what might be wrong with our relationships and and how to transform our relationships. And so if I I could just recap Galatians uh, real quick because we're jumping back into this book. Uh, Our series is called How to Do Nothing. And we started in chapter 5, beginning of the summer, and then we broke for the VBS series. And now we're jumping back into chapter kind of the end of 5 and chapter 6. And the very beginning of Galatians was all about um, Paul teaching these Galatians, Galatian Christians that the law can't save you. Obedience to the law can't save you. It's Jesus and his obedience and his sacrifice on the cross. That's what can save you. We framed it up this way, that the gospel is Jesus plus 
Nothing. Yes, that was chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 3 and 4, we learned about uh, the fact that we are clothed with Jesus, that we are all sons of God. We're free to enjoy uh, God's Spirit that lives in us, and we have this inheritance to look forward to. That was chapters 3 and 4. And in 5 and 6, Paul is going to tell us, if the gospel is Jesus plus nothing, then how do we do that? How do we do Nothing, And he's going to say that Christians are free from obeying the law to find salvation, but we're not free to disregard the law, right? We are to use our freedom by obeying the law, and we are to use our freedom by being led by the Spirit instead of the over-desires of our sinful nature. And that will impact everything about us, not the least of which is our relationships with others. In fact... These relationships that we have could be like a spiritual thermometer of, of how healthy we are. You want to know how you're doing in the spiritual life, take a look at your relationships and you'll see. And so Paul is going to show one of the reasons that relationships are so difficult. He does so uh, with verse 26 of chapter 5. And he says, we have, generally speaking, the wrong approach to relationships. And the problem is seen in three words that Paul uses. And these three words are a summary of what's wrong in almost every one of our relationships. And it's a very instructive verse because it shows us, number one, that our conduct to others is largely determined by our opinion of ourselves. So, When you have problems with relationships, the first place to turn is not to the other person. The first place to turn is to yourself. Are you angry? Are you awed? Are you frustrated? Are you fearful? It probably has more to do with you and what's going on with you than it does anybody else. So the three words, uh, the first of the three words is provoking. Provoking. Provoking means to be competitive. It is to uh, challenge somebody to a contest. Basically, it means to look down your nose at somebody. It is to say, I dare you to do something as if you know you are superior and you're easily going to win. It is that, you know, uh, Ralphie and his friends are around the flagpole and I triple dog dare you to stick your tongue, you know, the flagpole. And they know that, you know, what's going to happen, right? That is provoking. Um, Driving is an easy area of life for me to kind of illustrate this, and it happens to all of us. Uh, Amy and I took some uh, time and went to Kansas City the last couple days, and Friday morning we were on our way up there, and I have the cruise set, okay? It is set. I am going a consistent amount of speed, and yet (laughs) I pass a minivan, a town and country minivan. And then, sure enough, they pass me, right? And then I pass them. And then they pass me. And the third time this happens, I'm like, I know Chrysler makes a cruise control. Would you use it? And that is, that's provoking. And provoking can happen whether or not the other person is even aware, right? I am saying, you suck at driving. (laughs) Get better, right? That's provoking. The second word is envy, envying, envying. And envying is to want something that belongs to somebody else. 
It is to have ill will towards someone because of a presumed advantage that we think they have or something like that. And so let's stick with the driving analogy. You know, uh, we're on our way up to Kansas City. We finally make it there after we've leapfrogged this minivan the whole time. And sure enough, man, we, we pull on to 435 and there is this beautiful brand new Corvette, white with black accents and just the whole, I mean, all I have to do is say Corvette, right? And, and you know, you know. And so the envy in me kicks in, right? Wow, that'd be nice to have. And when envy kicks in for me in that kind of setting, I turn sarcastic. <laughs> and so I say things to Amy like, can you believe the junk that Chevy is turning out there? I mean, look at that. It's not aerodynamic at all. It's terrible looking. It has rust all over it. I mean, I wouldn't even consider something like that unless it was like maybe tan or something like that. Then maybe. Yeah. Envy, right? We want something somebody else has. Now, John Stott says this about provoking and envying. He says, this is not just people who are hostile and provoking people that they're envious of. That, that's one way to read this verse. He says it's not just that. What's happening here is these are, Paul is giving us two different ways of relating to other people. The first two words express the two ways that we damage our relationships. We damage our relationships either because we think we are superior to other people or because we think we are inferior to other people. And so how this works is that generally speaking, and, and again, this is a generality, all right? We're generalizing here. But mostly with everyone we meet, we measure and put people in one camp or another uh, depending on where we fall in that area. And so if I look at another person and I see their possessions, or I look at another person and I see their abilities or their talents, and I look at other people and I see their looks or their shape, I look at other people and I see their intelligence, I see maybe their potential, I see their career, I see their financial status, all of those things are areas that we do this, and we look at other people in any of one of those areas, maybe all of them, and we size them up and we either provoke or envy, depending on what we see. And so... My, one of my areas is uh, we, we usually do this in an area that we're pretty proficient at. And so one of my areas is music. I'd like to think I'm pretty proficient in that. And so provoking comes when I hear somebody else sing or I hear a song being played on the radio. And I think, can nobody but me hear that they're flat? How did this get on the, the airwaves? Right? That's me provoking. I'd never sing flat. Why do people like that even bother singing? Why do we have to put up with that? And you can provoke like that without the other person ever knowing that you're doing it, right? Or, on the other hand, we envy. And in my case, uh, I do that as well, right? In this area of music, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we went to see John Connolly in concert. Anybody? Like two or three old people like me? Yeah. Ah, uh, those rose-colored glasses that I'm looking through. My daughter's shaking her head at me. Don't, don't do that. Yes. But I'm, 
I'm kind of envious of this guy and his career because he's 182 and he can still sing with this silky voice, right? And it's great. And his initials are even the same as Jesus Christ. You can't get holier than that, JC. And uh, he did sell sunglasses and they were rose-colored glasses. And I bought some and they have JC on the corner. And so they work in church. They work on so many levels. It's great, okay? And so we provoke or envy. And the thing that we do is that we either have a superiority complex or an inferiority complex with about everyone we meet, and we bring out these scales called provoking and envying. And we can, we can frame it up this way to, um, to state it a little better. Uh, we ask this, are you better than me or beneath me? That's the scale that we use. Are you better than me or beneath me? In areas of life that we're proficient in, we measure. And, and that's, the, that's the thing, right? Very few relationships uh, that we have where this isn't true. Um, I would never measure somebody based on whether they're a good surgeon or not because I have no experience on how to be a surgeon. And yet, we measure in the areas that we are proficient at And we measure in such a way that people around us have no idea that they're being measured. And so we we stack the deck in our favor, right? And that's why this is unfair and it's bogus and it's damaging to our relationships. Because we get to set the scale that other people don't even know they're on. And the third word is going to tell us why we do this. The third word is conceited. Conceited. The uh, authorized version translates conceited as desirous of vain glory. Maybe some of your, uh, maybe some of you are listening or looking at that translation. And a key concept here is vain glory. It means empty glory or glory in a vacuum or glory without reason, Uh, empty of glory. Because deep inside of us, we have a problem. We know that we don't matter, matter. And I'm using that word on purpose because. Um, when we talk about glory, the Greek word is doxa. And uh, when we give glory to God, maybe you've heard of a doxology. That means we're giving glory to God. We're giving weight to God. We're saying to God, you matter to me. You have weight in my life. And we understand intuitively because of the sin that we have in our lives that we do not weigh as much as we ought to weigh. We don't have the glory. We don't count. We don't have the worth that we want to have. We don't have the value that we want to have. Deep down, we know we're kind of nobody. And by the way, Christianity is the only paradigm that I know of that will point a finger at you and tell you the truth. It will not shy away from this. Christianity will say, yes, you are worthless. That's why Christ went to a cross, to give his perfect life, to get you weight and glory as you stand before a God who created you. And conceited is what happens when we forget that we have Jesus. Conceited is what happens when we don't have Jesus at all. 
It's about covering up this spiritual condition that we all have where we don't have any weight. And so a conceited person is always trying to prove something that they know isn't true. I know I don't have any weight in my life, but I need some honor and some glory from the other people in my life. And so I'm going to try to look a certain way so that I get that glory and that honor in my life from other people, but I know inside it isn't true. Conceited is trying to prove something that I know isn't true. And it it comes from a deep-seated insecurity to try to get honor and glory and weight and worth in my life, trying to prove that I matter. And so the scales come out and... Depending on who I'm looking at, I'm either superior or inferior, and they are both forms of conceit because either way, I'm looking at me. I'm looking at other people, and I'm asking, how can they help me? How can they make me look good? Give me glory. Give me weight. And so what Paul is saying to his readers in verse 26 is this, don't let your hunger for that honor, for that weight, make you either despise people or envy them. Don't grab the scales. There is an underlying thing in this flawed strategy for relationships, and it is the world's way of love. I want you to go back up in uh, verse 15. And in verse 15, Paul gives us the world's way of love, and the world's way of love is to consume. Be careful that you don't bite and devour one another. The world's way of love is to consume, to go after somebody for what I can get from them, to go after somebody to prove that I'm more. And so if somebody's beneath me, then I'm going to crush them further to prove that I'm bigger. And if somebody is above me and better than me, then I'm going to use that. I'm going to use their status to, for me to crawl up the ladder a little more and prove that I'm bigger. And both mean that I'm using other people and devouring them for my own appetite and consuming them. And one of the things that Paul does here is that he is really graphic with his language. He's done that a few times. Uh, those of you who have been with us in our Galatians series, shake your head. Yes, he's been pretty graphic. Yes. Um, And he does it again here. He says in verse 15, uh, be careful not to bite and devour one another. And the picture is literally of cannibalism going on. And in the first century, that was a way to kind of get across inconceivable wickedness to your readers. Uh, They would have been just as horrified, probably more so, at the thought of people eating each other and cannibalizing each other as we are. And Paul says, that's what happens when you get out the scales, when you start provoking and envying, you are consuming, you're cannibalizing each other. I could not help when I, when I was thinking about this this last week, but go back to our Imagine Heaven series. And there was a guy named Howard Storm. Some of you remember that clip that we played and Howard Storm Uh, was dead on a table in a hospital in France, and he had this experience of these people that he thought were friendly at first, leading him into more and more darkness until finally uh, they were in utter darkness. And he he said, these people did what Paul's saying. They devoured me. They tore me apart. 
He said, they did things to me that I still cannot totally share with any other human being. And I thought about his story when I thought about this verse, because hell is where we are perpetually consumed by other people, where we are cannibalized and we do the cannibalizing. And so the irony on the last day is that people who were made in relationship, the people who were made to be known will reject the gift of being known. And as a consequence, God will give them what they want and they will never have again what they were created for, relationship and the ability to be known. And the worst part of hell is probably not going to be uh, the fire and the brimstone and all that as painful as it's going to be. The worst part of hell is is going to be that you're utterly alone. You're not in the relationship that you were created for. And so Paul in the text gives us a better way. He says the better way in verse 13 to 15 is to live by the Spirit. And the better way is to love God's way. Earlier, I talked about the world's way of love. That was in air quotes because it's not really love, is it? But this really is love. God's way of love is to serve. Serve. Verse 13 Serve one another in love. It's not what I can get from you. It's not what can I get out of this person. But the question becomes, what can I do to make you the person that you were created to be? With everyone that I'm around, what can I do for you to give you life? What can I do to improve the relationships that you and I were made for How can I serve you? And that's God's way of love. It's the better way. And the way we make it a consistent practice is in in verse 25. Paul says, run after what the Spirit runs after. The Spirit runs after Jesus. And so keep in step with the Spirit and run after Jesus. And I want you to watch in Scripture what Jesus runs after. We could just point to a couple places. And we can find very easily what Jesus runs after. It's quite different than what we run after. We run after glory and weight and honor in the eyes of other people. What about Jesus? Did he do that? When Satan took him out into the wilderness and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, I will give you this. It can be yours. Just bow down. He said, no, I'm not running after that. That's not my goal here. That's not my mission. Another place, Jesus was so loved by the crowd that they gathered around him and they wanted to make him king on the spot. We're going to make you king by force. And the text says that he kind of mysteriously slipped away from the crowd, like he just kind of disappeared because he's not about that. I'm not running after that kind of glory. I'm not running after that kind of weight. What did Jesus run after? He runs after something unexpected. Emptiness is what he runs after. In Philippians chapter 2, it says this, that he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he became nothing. He emptied himself. He emptied himself by becoming a human. He runs, he runs after weakness. He runs after suffering. He runs after making himself nothing. He runs after humbling himself so much that it gets him sent to a cross. 
And he runs after that, and it ends up killing him. And at the end of the day, after all that running after emptiness, what happens? Therefore, Philippians 2 says, God exalted him. God crowned him with an eternal weight, an eternal glory. He crowned him with so much glory that at the end of time, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and say, Jesus is Lord. And so how do I keep in step with that? How do I keep in step with the Spirit? I run after emptiness. I run after what Jesus ran after. That is so not like the world. You'll never go outside these doors and hear people say, oh, just run to emptiness and it'll work out for you. No. But there it is. Keep in step with the Spirit. And the only way I can do that is to know what really fills me up. And if I'm out of step, then that means I'm running after glory. I'm running after my own weight. I'm conceited. I'm provoking and envy. I'm getting the scales out. And, and the end result of that is biting and devouring. And the end result of that is that I will be alone and without the relationship that I was created for. And I don't know of a better description than hell for that. And so how to do nothing today means I run after emptiness. I run after emptiness. If I run to be full then I'm empty. But the gospel says, if I run to be empty, then I'm full because of what Jesus has done. We're going to conclude with our communion time at the end here. And so if you are a server today, would you go ahead and get in place at this time? And as they get in place, I want to just tell you a story. I sent this out on the email on Friday and, um, if you're not on the email, you're not getting those, give us your email and, We will put that in your inbox, and it'll be a great thing. But there's a story of a guy named Danny. Danny was 24 years old, and in 1990, he was living in Ottawa, Canada, and he decided that his last resort, the way he had to get by, was to go rob a bank. And so he took a gun, and he went into the bank, and he he waved the gun around, and he was successful in getting about $6,000 into his getaway bag. And then the police apprehended him. And they took him away and they put him in jail for six years for those $6,000. One of the things that they discovered was that the gun that he was carrying was actually a 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic, which turned out to be an antique. It was made by the Ross Rifle Company in Quebec City in 1918. And the very gun that he was carrying was worth close to $100,000. And yet he thought, i got to go rob a bank to get by. If he had only known what he already had. And I want to suggest to you that that's what this table's for. To remind ourselves of what we already have. And when we are full Because of what this table gives us, all the weight and the glory in front of God because of what Jesus has done. When we know we are full, then we will have no reason to get the scales out and provoke and envy. And our relationships take on a much, much different look, don't they? It's only when we realize that we already, what we already have, 
that we will stop looking for what we don't have in destructive ways. And if we know we're full already, then we won't have an appetite, we won't have a hunger to devour the flesh of other people. And so the gospel fills up the one who runs after emptiness. And I want you, as we eat together today, I want you to spend time on that thought, running after emptiness. Ask yourself, am I conceited today? Ask yourself, do I feel superior to some people around me? Do I feel inferior to some people around me? And how can I root my sense of worth into the person of Jesus Christ more and more today? Focus on those. I'm going to have Katie pray.
But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Jennifer. It is pretty easy to lose God. Luke is the only gospel writer to include a story from Jesus' childhood. No other gospel writer includes anything about Jesus from the time he is a small child to the time he starts his ministry when he is about 30 years old. And only Luke includes a story in the, in, about Jesus' childhood. And in this text, this story that he chooses to include, he is 12. Jesus is 12. Presumably, Luke wrote because he was able to sit down with eyewitnesses, sit down with people who were really in these shoes and write from what they told him. So we assume that he sat down with Mary, Jesus' mother, and he said, tell me everything. And Mary would have told him all the stories that she could recollect, all the stories of Jesus and his youth. And Luke decides to take this one. Why this one? Well, it tells us a lot about Jesus, and it gives us some hints about his mission, even though he's 12. And so let's start this way. The text says that Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph and Mary were devout Jews, and they were headed up to the Passover feast. There were three feasts that all the Jewish people were uh, expected to attend. The Passover was one, the Pentecost feast was another, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three happened in Jerusalem. And all three were kind of required, but not everybody could afford to go to all three. And so if you only could choose one, it was always the Passover. The Passover was a week-long feast. It was kind of this national pride. It was kind of Fourth of July mixed in with a great family reunion with God at the center of everything that they did. And so Joseph packed up the minivan. He loaded all of his you know, kids, all of his family into... Uh, into the van and they get to Jerusalem and they spend this week with family and friends and they keep God at the center. They do everything that they're supposed to do on Passover. And then after about a week, they start heading home. And just one problem, they get about a day's journey away and they start looking around and guess what? No, Jesus. Jesus is nowhere. He's missing. Wait a minute. He's not with you? I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. I thought he was with you. Where where in the world? And there's panic. And uh, we're told Joseph and Mary are greatly distressed in the text. They're in pain. And you can understand that if you've ever had a lost kid, right? The first thing we see in the text is a lost Jesus. A lost Jesus. And probably the first question that anybody has about this little story when they read it is, how in the world do you lose a kid? 
<laughs> in those days, people traveled, especially to feasts like this, to Jerusalem, in really big groups. Uh, families would have traveled together. Whole villages might have traveled together, and they would keep an eye on each other and everyone else's children. And one of the things that they did was the women and children would set the pace up front so that the pace wasn't too fast. And the men and the younger men would have stayed in the back. And what age is Jesus again? Twelve. That puts him right in the middle, right? And so there are times that he could have been up with the women and children. There are times that he could have been back with the men. And Mary thought he's one place and Joseph thinks he's another. And maybe both of them think, oh, he's with some other family. And that's how you lose a kid. That's a different way, right? It's not, not like we're loading up for a family vacation and we leave a kid at the gas station. Anyone? <laughs> when you think about that, Mary and Joseph seem like superstar compar- parents compared to some of, some of us. I, I, was in, I was in at least three different groups this last week, and uh, groups of people, and I asked them, because we, you know this was the story this week, I said, uh, give me a time that either you were a kid and were lost, or give me a time where you were in charge of a kid and you, you lost a kid. And I had teachers say, oh yeah. There's this one time we were on this trip and this kid, man, and it was a whole fiasco. And I had a grandparent say, yeah, my grandchild came over and couldn't find him. And, and uh, I had uh, moms and dads. There was nobody that was, that was without a story. Everybody's had a time where they've lost a kid or they've been lost. Um, Jamie is our ministry administrator. And uh, she told a story on her husband, Bob. And uh, I will relate it to you today and get Bob in trouble uh, because it's not a stellar day for Bob. Way back when, uh, their oldest, Kyle, was maybe kindergarten, first grade. And he was, uh, Bob was playing softball at the time, so they played over on the fields over here at the college. And he decided to take Kyle with him because there's a playground over there. And so Kyle was playing in the playground, Bob's playing softball, and of course, you know, it's, it's a great game and, you know, he makes the winning play or whatever. And, and uh, he's so excited, he gets in the car and he goes home and, and he bursts through the door and he tells Jamie about this monumental hit that he had and the great way that he won the game. And she said, that's wonderful, honey. Where's my son? I will be right back. (laughs) And uh, he headed out here, obviously frantic, panicked, right? He got there and no Kyle. Kyle is gone. In the meantime, Kyle has decided nobody's here. Everybody left me. I guess I need to walk home. Little kindergarten, first grader. They lived over in uh, about the 700 block of Crawford or Judson, I think, somewhere in there. Okay, so that's quite a hike for a kindergarten first grader. He found Dairy Queen somehow, <laughs> which, is, which is now the butcher block, but it used to be Dairy Queen. And he knew that if he found Dairy Queen and he went a certain direction from Dairy Queen, that he would stumble onto some houses that eventually that he would recognize. And uh, I tell you what, uh, Jamie said during that trip where they had lost Kyle, this was before cell phones. So they're trying to, you know, call one another from pay phones and the home phone and the home phone's tied up because Jamie's calling the prayer chain and the prayer chain is all activated. And, and uh, Ron Billiard, one of our elders, was even there on their, on their front porch praying for, you know, that they would find Kyle. It was a whole deal. And let's just say it wasn't a great day for Bob, okay? <laughs> and 
It's one thing, no offense to Kyle, no offense to Bob and Jamie, it's one thing to lose a kid in Fort Scott, America, right? But to lose the Son of God. Think about how Mary and Joseph would have been feeling. They would have been beating themselves up, right? They would have been blaming themselves. They're their own worst critics. And the, 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 the way you lose the Son of God is the way you lose any other kid. You get distracted. Bob was thinking of the great play. Bob was thinking of the dramatic way that they won the game. Bob was thinking of the, you know, the thing that that guy said to him and what he said back. And, and all of a sudden he's at home and he's missing a kid. We get distracted. And it's not just Mary and Joseph that get distracted and lose the Son of God. We get distracted, right? And we lose the Son of God sometimes. It's difficult to find Jesus when we are distracted. Sometimes it's the world that distracts us, those forces that pull us away from God and His will and His kingdom. Sometimes it's just the busyness of life that distracts us. We have all of these things that we try to pack into the day and we come to the end of it and we realize, oh, God wasn't a part of the day. Sometimes we get distracted even by the good things that we can do. We do stuff for God. We do ministry for God. But we get so busy doing those good things for God that we forget that God is the reason we're doing these things in the first place. And we miss Him. We lose Jesus. Mary and Joseph were doing what faithful and devout Jewish people did. They were going to Jerusalem to observe this religious festival. And in in the middle of this religious pilgrimage that is designed to refocus people on God, they lose God. It's possible. So the question is, what do we do when we lose God? And I want you to take a look at what, just first, what Joseph and Mary do. It's something pretty instinctual. They head back to Jerusalem. Bob head back, headed back to the softball fields, right? The backstory here is that Mary and Joseph actually go back to the beginning. We could say that because the temple was where Mary and Joseph, Jerusalem itself was where Mary and Joseph took Jesus when he was first born to dedicate him to God. And that's pretty good advice for us too, to go back to the beginning. And there are two possible ways that we can go back to the beginning. There's one blank in your, in your bulletin. I'm going to give you two options for that blank. You just pick the one that applies to you today. The first word we could write there is repent. Repent. If there's a biblical concept for going back to the beginning, it would be this word, repentance. Repentance is all about going back. It's about turning around and going a different way. It's about going back to where we started, back to the basics of faith. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Going back to that. To say, you know what, God, I've been distracted by all of this other stuff, but I'm going back to where I started. I believe that life is in you and not in any of these other things. So I'm going to put you in the center of everything that I do. There's a famous statement in the history of the church that says all of Christian life is repentance. The thing that we fall into, the trap, is that when we throw out this word repentance, a lot of us, a lot of us hear that word and we think failure. But I need you to think training when you hear that word. Repentance isn't about failing. Repentance is about training. Repentance is about getting up and saying, God, I commit this day all over to you again, and hopefully I'm a little better today than I was yesterday. That's what repentance is about. That's why it's every day. That's why all of Christian life is about repentance. So the other option for that blank is church. Church. 
Joseph and Mary go back to where they started. And when Jesus was born, they go to the temple. They dedicate him to God. That was the right thing to do according to the law. And when they lose him 12 years later, ironically, they find him in the very place where they started. So we could ask ourselves that same question. How about us? When we lose Jesus, where do we go? Maybe we should go back to the beginning. So tell me, go back to the beginning in your mind. How did you learn about Jesus? How did you learn about the saving grace of Jesus? Let me jog your memory and remind you of probably how you didn't learn of the saving grace of Jesus. You didn't learn it from a building. Oh, these, these buildings are great. Community Christian Church is a great place. It's a great building. But it's not the church. The church is God's people, right? And if you go back to the beginning and you think about how you were given this message of the saving grace of Jesus, it always involved a person. It was a person saying to you, here's what Jesus meant to me. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. I think he can be your savior too. It always goes back to a person and that's the church. And when we lose God, the odds are well overwhelming that we'll be able to find him again in the pew, right? In the communion table. We'll be able to find him again in an old hymn or maybe a new song. Why? Because the other people who are trying to find him also are there with us. That's how the church is supposed to work. And so when we lose Jesus, go back to the beginning. Maybe we should do both. Maybe we should repent. And maybe we should go back to his people, the church. And so Mary and Joseph go back. They go back to the beginning. It took them a day to return to the city, Jerusalem. It probably took them another day to find Jesus. And so they are three days in at this point. And after searching, what they find is a learning Jesus, a learning Jesus. He's found in the temple. And in the temple, in some corner of it, he's in the middle of a circle. And there are Jewish teachers and rabbis. And he is part of that circle and he is asking them questions and he is listening to their answers. And the text says that the teachers are amazed at both his questions and his answers. They are thunderstruck by the deep comprehension that this 12-year-old Jewish boy is displaying. He's not the normal uh, kid at Hebrew school, right? Okay. And um, the thing that we need to avoid here as we picture this in our minds, we need to avoid this thought that the little boy Jesus is sitting around straightening out his elders, like pointing a finger, straightening out the teachers of the law and the rabbis. That's not what's happening here. The text does not say anything like that. It just says he was listening and asking questions. And that fits. Why? Because God is love and love is listening. Love is listening. And so the teachers and the rabbis are amazed. And if we were writing this, we would write it this way. They were blown away. There was somebody else that stumbled upon that scene, and they were also blown away. It was not the rabbis and teachers. It was Mary and Joseph. And they are blown away in a little different sense. This is mom who has lost her son, and she's blown away in a fire coming out of my eye sockets kind of way. 
right? And now I finally found you, and what the heck are you doing to me? How can you do this to me, right? And dad is with her, and he just wants mom to get her son back, so she's not, you know, uh, frantic. And um, so the rabbis are blown away by what they hear, and Mary and Joseph are blown away by what they see. And this frightened, panicked, upset mom says what a mom would say in verse 48. Why have you done this to us? There's a little bit of uh, mom guilt and shame there put on like only moms can do. And then she says, after all we've done for you, this is how you repay us, right? Nobody has a mom like that, right? She saves her deepest knife for last. She says, your father and I have been looking for you. It's kind of the first century equivalent to wait, just wait till your father gets home. That, that's what's going on here. And that's interesting because Jesus latches on to that phrase, your father. And that's why I'm making a big deal of it. And he begins in verse 49. He says, why are you looking for me? There's no issue here. And he says, you should know who I am. You should know that I must be, or you should know that it is necessary for me to be about my father's, and depending on your translation, it says uh, my father's business or my father's house or my, my father's things. Those, that word, whatever it is in your translation, is not in the Greek text. The Greek literally reads, do not you know that in the father of me I must be? In other words, it wasn't the temple that was the thing. It was God. The temple isn't the important part. God is the important part. Jesus is emphatic. I've got to be about learning about my Father. I've got to know God who is in heaven because He is my Father, and this is my chance to do so. And in this this one sentence, Jesus makes this distinction between Joseph, who is His adopted Father, and God in heaven, who is His real, true Father. At age 13... Every Jewish boy goes through um, a celebration where he is introduced to the full responsibilities of adulthood. And you probably know, you've probably heard about what that celebration is and what it's called. It's called a bar mitzvah. Yes. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the commandment. And when a, when a Jewish boy turns 13, he goes through this bar mitzvah so that he can literally from then on become a son of the commandment. And from that point on, the full responsibilities of the law that, gave Moses, that God gave Moses are upon his shoulders. And he is now officially an adult. It's odd that we never look back at the life of Jesus and think about him having a bar mitzvah. But surely he did. But Luke doesn't include that story. He includes this one. And it's a year before that would have happened. He's 12, right? And the thing that we need to understand is that for the year prior to the bar mitzvah, that there was something that a Jewish father would do to prepare his son for that day when he was 13 and he would become a son of the commandment. The Jewish fathers would prepare their sons for that step that was coming. And so Joseph, no doubt, has been out the, at this with Jesus. So it was an intense time of, of training and focus. And Joseph would have said to Jesus, here's how to be a man. 
and here's what it means to work, and here's how, what it means to follow God, here's what it means to pray. Jesus probably learned more about carpentry that year than any year, probably more about life that year than any year he had so far, probably more about God than any other year. And so taking Jesus on this trip to the Passover, to this celebration, to the temple at age 12 would have been most appropriate. He would have said, this is the temple, son. And this is why we go to the temple. And this is what the temple means. And this is the Passover. And this is what the Passover means. And this is what the Passover lamb means. And this is who we are as a people of God. And this intense mentoring happened the whole year when they were 12. And maybe we should pause there and just ask, Dads, are you that? Are you being intentional with your sons? Are you saying, you have what it takes? Here's how to navigate life. Here's how to be a man. Dads, are you being intentional with your daughters? You're beautiful. I love you. You're the princess of the world. And here's how to navigate life. And here's how to be steered back to the only person that can really give us life at the end of the day, Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in life, You'll always find life in Him. Are, you, are we intentional about steering our kids in that direction? And so it was a normal thing for Jewish dads to do for their sons. And that has to make us pause. Because Mary says, your father and I, and he, she's meeting Joseph, were distressed. We were looking for you. And Jesus responds this way. You should know I'm here on earth for my real father. One of the other unusual things that the Passover would have brought about was a gathering of the greatest rabbis and teachers and theologians in the Jewish world. They would have all descended on Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And these scholars would have no doubt assembled at the temple and they would have uh, gathered together to teach and discuss great truths among themselves. Uh, Think about it as a conference, right, that we would go to. It was kind of that feel. And so we can imagine Jesus stumbling into that and one of the, you know, he's reading through the program. One of the breakout sessions is Messiah. You know, let's talk about the Messiah. And he's like, oh, that's me. I should probably go to that. Even though they didn't ask me to speak, I'm kind of bummed. But so he would go and uh, he is this 12-year-old kid, but he's the Messiah. He is unknown to any of these rabbis, these great teachers, but he is observe, uh, absorbing and learning infinitely more than he ever could in Nazareth and infinitely more than even Joseph could have ever taught him. And so here's, here's the thought. And this... Full disclosure here, this is, this is conjecture a little bit. We're reading between the lines here, but it's a guess, but it makes sense. And I think Jesus actually even does hint at it. What if in the 12-year-old life of Jesus, God, his heavenly father, was doing the same thing that his earthly father was trying to do? What if God, his real father, is taking that 12th year and being intensely strategic about it, focusing on Jesus on becoming that son of the commandment. What if God himself is teaching Jesus? What if Joseph, as he's walking around Jerusalem, is teaching Jesus, and yet God is coming behind that teaching and going a million levels deeper? What if Joseph is saying, 
This is the temple. And this is why we worship. And this is what we do here. And this is how we relate to God. And God, the true Father, comes in behind that teaching and says, You are the temple. You're the real temple that's going to destroy this one, to make it obsolete. What if Joseph is walking around Jerusalem and saying, hey, there's history on these streets. King David walked on these streets and he turned all of the history of Israel. And the real Father God is coming in behind that and saying, Jesus, you also will walk on these streets and all of history will, will pivot because of what you're going to do on these streets. But it will mean that you'll carry a cross as you walk on them. And almost surely, uh, Joseph would have led his family through the Passover meal. And the, the culmination of that Passover meal was the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb was... Uh, a, a reference to what happened in Egypt where the lamb's blood was put on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite people so that none of their firstborn would die. And Joseph did a great job of leading his family through that remembrance. And what if God came in behind and said to Jesus, see that lamb? You are that lamb. There's another lamb that has to die so that Other people will live even though they die, and you are that lamb. God is steering Jesus, being intentional to make the most of an opportunity. And that makes sense, right? The temple makes sense. And so he's learning. And he's learning really well from the Father. Look at verse 50. He's saying things about God no one gets. He's talking in ways no one talks. He's saying, my father, my father, over and over. And no one talks like that. No one, that's a radical, radical concept. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books and only 14 times is God referred to as father. And every one of those times, it is in reference to a nation, like he is the father of the Jewish nation, not never about individuals. He's never a father to individuals. And yet Jesus comes on the scene, even at verse 12, or age 12, and he says, I love my father. It's my father. That's why I'm here. And he's saying it in reference to daddy. He's, he's saying, my father is so relatable to me. My God is so relatable to me. He's like a daddy that I could crawl crawl up in his lap and say anything to, share anything with. And Luke is telling us here that Jesus had a relationship to God unlike anyone else ever. Jesus is going to make it possible for you and I to have that kind of relationship with God. And there is no way at this point that anybody understands that. The rabbis, the teachers, they're confused. They're blown away. His parents, Jesus, Joseph... And Mary, they're confused, they're bewildered, they're blown away. Nothing has changed. Jesus still confounds us today. He doesn't fit into the boxes that we kind of create for God and say, this is how God should be. This is what God should do. Jesus does not fit into those norms. He always brings new learning into our lives, new paradigms. And I can't fit him because it's difficult to fit Jesus when he brings the unexpected. And that's what we see at every turn. He confounds the experts by talking about God in ways they've never thought of. He does that to us. Things that don't fit how we think God should be. We look around at our world and it's confusing to us when good people face horrible circumstances. Anybody? Yeah. 
That's confusing. God, that doesn't fit with a loving God. We look around our world and it's confusing to us that he says he is just. God says, I am a just God. And yet we look around and we see evil people ruling the day. How does that work? That doesn't fit in my box of what God should do and what God should be about. It's confusing to us that he loves us, but he still lets us go through storms. We don't get that. That doesn't fit the God that we want. It's confusing to us when God says there's a point to all suffering. And yet when we look around, all we can see is seemingly pointless suffering. Anybody read about Branson this week? Man, why God? That doesn't fit after all we've done for you. We get this in return and we want to use Mary's words in times like these. what What are Mary's words? How can you treat me like this? This isn't what God should be about. It's confusing. It's mystifying. It's painful. It's disheartening. And it summons a crucial question. And this question is the hinge point. If we get it right, then we're good. If we get it wrong, we are lost. And the question is, why should I trust a God who doesn't fit into the box that I want to create? The God that doesn't fit what I think God should be or do. Why should I trust him? And some people in our world just immediately say, I can't trust him. I can't trust a God like that. I won't trust a God like that. Thank you very much. I'm going to move on to something else. But in this text, I want, I want to show you why we can. Why we can trust a God who doesn't fit our concept of what a God should be. It's because we see, number three in this text, a loving Jesus. A loving Jesus. It's in the very first red words recorded from the lips of Jesus. Some of you have old school and, uh, you know, the words of Jesus are in red. These are the very first ones. He's 12 years old. He says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know who I am? It is necessary that I be in my father's house. And there's a clear tension between who his real father is and who his adopted father is. And there's a huge theological bomb here because Joseph might be an adoptive father, but make no mistake, I am not Joseph's son. I am God's son. I am the son of God. And here in the first recorded words of Jesus, Jesus understands clearly who he is. Is. Now think about what that means. I want you to do so by going back to your 12-year-old self. Go back to when you were 12 years old. What were you wearing? <laughs> what was your hair like? Who were you with? What issues did you have with the authority figures in your life? What issues did you have with your parents that they just didn't get, right? And what 12-year-old on the planet wouldn't want to be God's son. Every teenager everywhere would love this kind of power. One of the phrases I would rattle off as a parent when my kids kind of got out of bounds and they tried to rule a little more than they should in our house, I would say something along these lines, God put big people with little people for a reason and I'm big and you're small and one day that will change but it's not today so you're going to do what I tell you to do, right? Um, When you're big, you can make the rules, but that's how it works. But I want you to think about trying to say that to Jesus. Joseph trying to say, hey, I'm the big person here, and you are... Oh, wait a minute. You're actually bigger. (laughs) 
wait a minute, I'm the older person, the wiser person here, and you're just, oh, wait a minute, you're actually older than I am and infinitely wiser than me. I'm the authority here and you're going to, wait a minute, you made everything that there is to make. You made everything that we see. And Jesus is the only human being ever to be able to say to his parents, listen to me because I really am the authority. I made everything that you see. And I will be making decisions around here because I'm older than you. My way goes because I'm actually really in control of everything. That's where Jesus was. And so what you have here in a 12-year-old Jesus is a glimpse that Jesus knew who he was and yet without missing a beat, he also knew what he was to do. The phrase, I must be in my father's house could also be, it is necessary. And it has a parallel later in the book of Luke. At the end of the Luke, uh, Luke's gospel, he will include a story and he will use this phrase again. Jesus will, it's in red letters there too. There are two guys that have just ironically come from the Passover feast. And it's the very Passover feast where Jesus has been hung on a cross and crucified. And they have looked at him as Savior and the hope of all Israel. And now he is dead. He's hanging on a cross and they're walking away from Jerusalem. And they have no hope. They are disheartened. And all of a sudden, a third traveler pops in and starts walking with them. They don't know it, but it's Jesus. It's resurrected Jesus. And they start telling this newcomer, What has happened in Jerusalem as if he didn't know? Did you hear what happened? All hope is lost. Our Savior, Jesus, was hung on a cross. And he was, we banked everything on him. And now there's nothing left. We're not sure what to do. And Jesus chimes in. They still don't know it's him. But he says, oh, foolish people. (laughs) You're so slow. And he says this, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to these two guys in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, all the things about himself and what it was necessary that he do. And so in chapter 2, you have mom and dad, it is necessary that I be about my father. And in chapter 24, you have guys, it is necessary that the Christ should die this way. And what we see here, even at the beginning in 12-year-old Jesus, is that he knew who he was, but he also knew exactly what he was to do. He was God in the flesh. He was creator of everything, maker of the very parents that were in front of him, infinite power behind this face full of pimples. And yet, what does it say in verse 51? It says that the word of life, the logos, the one who spoke everything into existence, went home. And what's the word? Submitted. Maybe your translation says, obeyed the parents that he had made. And there it is. That's why you should trust. That's why you should trust this God. Because he didn't have to, but he did it anyway. And maybe that's why Luke chose uh, chose this story. Because at the end of the tale, Jesus will be in the same spot. He doesn't have to hang on a cross, but he does it anyway. He doesn't have to obey, but he does it anyway. And this time his obedience is not to earthly parents. It's to his heavenly father. 
And he says, it is necessary that I hang on a cross so that others can live. It is necessary that I obey so that others could find the obedience to God that they can never live up to. And that's love. Love is to be in a position where nothing is required of us, and yet we do it anyway for the sake of someone else. And that's, that's a superhero, right? That's Jesus. That's a God worthy of my trust. And the Creator loved me when there was no reason to, and it's so difficult to forget Jesus when He obeys the Father for me, especially knowing what that meant. Father, I thank You that You have...